So we're doing this series, The Gospel in the Bible, um, because Jesus said one time that he was in every page of the Bible. And so we've been for basically a year tracking from Genesis all the way through. Now we're in the book of Jeremiah, and we're dealing with the prophets. And last week, one of the things that I talked about was that the, the reason you have, what you have to understand before you can understand why the fact that the prophets exist is so good, you have to understand human beings. And we have spent the better part of 150 years in Western culture trying to forget what a human being is. And um, the, the, therefore, the prophets make very little sense to us. And um, what the prophets assume is that what a human being actually is, is a creature that is made in God's image, is capable of an enormous good, enormous beauty, enormous creativity, enormous discovery, enormous curiosity, and yet is in the condition of depravity. That is, our nature has been depraved or broken or degenerated by the presence of sin so that all of these potentials become handled by and contaminated by a pervasive sinfulness which creates in us a shockingly profound moral stubbornness that we are basically oblivious to. The human beings are marked by a pervasive moral stubbornness that we are basically oblivious to. And we support that by all kinds of of ways of, of, of affirming ourselves, whether it's confirmation bias, like I listen to everything that says I'm right about what I think and not anything that says that I'm wrong about what I think, whether it's group thinking and be like, well, we all agree, right? We all agree we're fantastic, right? Right? Um, or non-thinking like, well, we don't have to think about this. There's real life to attend to. You know, food has to be cooked. Somebody has to go to work. I've got to get a shower. We've got to go out and see a movie. You know, there's buses going back and forth. That must be real life, not metaphysical, ethereal truths about this or that until I want to believe in love or something like that because it suits me at the moment. Or just, you know, not thinking about it or thinking that we're the exception, right? We think that we, we make fun of teenagers for thinking they can't be killed in a car. And yet we make the most ridiculous choices about our own lives that we would know anybody who we knew that made that choice, we would advise them not to do it if they asked us. But we think there's something about us that will make us different from the crowd, right? You may or may not believe that, but I like saying right. Um, Now, if that's true, then the prophets would make total sense. If our biggest problem is, is that We have sinful hearts, and we protect our sinful hearts, telling us we can do whatever we want, by putting this steel plating of stubbornness over it. Inscribed with our confirmation biases and our non-thinking and our whatever, then what we actually need is somebody to tell us that we're wrong and to do it in the most confrontational possible way imaginable. And the main way we would need to be confronted would be morally. And if that were true, the prophets would make total sense because what the prophets do is not primarily tell us about the future. They do that. That's not their primary job. And their primary job isn't revelation, to tell stuff we don't already know. Because everything Isaiah tells us about the character of God and what God demands from people in the book of Jeremiah is already in the law. It's already in the books of the Bible that come before it. There's very little new about what God is like. What Jeremiah is saying is he's taking the stuff we're supposed to already know and he's telling it to us again because we won't know it. The prophets aren't there to tell us what we don't know. 
the prophets are there to tell us again what we won't know. Because as human beings, what we really require is confrontation. That's the most loving thing we need, according to the Bible. Now, last week, I said that I want to go through the gospel in Jeremiah in four parts. One is, we have to face the symptom. Second is, we have to identify the sickness. Uh, This medical metaphor is used throughout the book of Jeremiah. Then we need to determine the remedy and take the treatment. Now, I argued last week, and if you want the 50-minute, 59-minute version, I think it was, of that one, um, just go to the website last week. But basically, I said, this is the most important step. This is what Jeremiah spends the majority of his time doing. Maybe 60, 70, I don't know, maybe 80% of the time, he spends his time coming straight at us, saying, you're not as good as you think you are, and arguing with us to try to get us to the point where we recognize that there is truth in God's rebuke of us. In fact, um, what he says is actually the opposite of the thing that we always assume, right? So— Here's one of the questions. Why should I forgive you? This is God speaking. Should I not punish you for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Or in verse 9 of chapter 9. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Because he's been—he's been explaining, like, everything. They just, like, they just do whatever they want. They just don't care what he says. They do whatever they want. He's like, what do you—what do you expect to happen? Like, did you—do you ever parent that way? I find myself sometimes parenting that way. My kids do stuff. They know it's wrong. I've told them a hundred times. They know why it's wrong. I've taught them. I've instructed them. I've shown them. I've given them other options. They still do whatever they want to do. And I go, I just find myself looking at this. What do you expect me to do right now? Honestly, like, I've taught you. I've encouraged you. I've nurtured you. I've I've helped you make other choices. I've given you other options. I've done all of this. What do you think I'm supposed to do now? What is my job as your parent? And what are you asking me to do? Right? And they're kind of like, can we avoid this conversation somehow? (laughs) You see, the the universal human assumption when we are about to be punished is what? You're overreacting, right? Right? It's a universal human. Immediately. Anytime anybody confronts you, especially if it includes some kind of punishment or discipline, the immediate thing virtually every human being thinks and thinks it to the core of their visceral self is you are way overreacting. Which is why parentally you can imagine somebody coming and being like, (laughs) what am I supposed to do? Right? Because if we don't go, yeah— Yeah, there's a problem. We can't go anywhere. And that's the thing that human beings like us, like you— I'm not talking about those Madisonians that don't come to church. I'm talking about you, and I'm talking about me. This is what we will not hear about ourselves. That we're not—we're not good. And we won't know it. And God is saying, that's not right. Right? He said, I mean, he's, um, it says that we were a stiff-necked people, that we've made our faces hard as stone, we've made our hearts. See how these are all references to stubbornness, right? Dostoevsky said one time, and I think it was in the introduction to Brothers Karamazov, he says, we are never as sophisticated as we think we are. I, me- I remember I was, in, I was talking to somebody in my office, and we were talking about Jesus. It was like the first time this person had ever talked about Jesus in their life. They were just at their wit's end, and they were ready to talk about Jesus. And I said, listen, we're going to talk about what's wrong with you, and you're going to find out it's not very sophisticated, and it's going to be humiliating. I just want you to know that before we even get into this. 
We're going to track down your idol, like what you really worship and what you really believe in and what's really important to you. And when we get there, yours is going to be as embarrassing as mine. It's going to be like, I want people to like me. I don't want my life to be hard. I want people to do things for me so that I don't have to do them myself. That's what it's going to be. And we've got all these layers of stubbornness and sophistication over it. Like, well, really, I'm— Yeah, not so much, right? And then he says, listen, it's to our own—it's to our own harm. We're killing our—why? Because if God's moral command is loving, then to disobey it is going to be harming. So is it any wonder he could say, are they not rather harming themselves, comma— to their own shame, meaning it's morally horrible. They should be ashamed of themselves, and they're harming themselves. Why would those two go together? Those would only two, they, they would only go together if the moral command is lovingly good. That's the only way that you would be ashamed of yourself and hurting yourself in the same action. Does that make sense? God is arguing he is good. He is loving implicitly in that negative statement. And then he argues that the leaders are just the same. They're like, I could stand up here and talk about you, and sometimes I use the word you, and it's mostly just so that, that you won't feel the comfort of the we. I don't mean it to be like fundamentalist guy and be like, well, I'm self-righteous, and I'm good, and you're bad, and I'm going to tell you you're bad, and you— No, it's that if I say we, there's this sort of comfort of all of us. In the you, you're fundamentally alone. And you are. Right? I say we when I want you to realize I mean everybody. I mean me. I mean you. I mean all of us. And this says that preachers and leaders and pastors, we have the exact same tendency. Except it's worse because we've been given the responsibility to be honest with ourselves and to lead out of authenticity, and we don't. What we'd rather be is have this strange codependent relationship where you tell me I'm fantastic and I'll tell you you're fantastic. And it's not true. And you—let me tell—quick story, quick story, okay? I was sitting with an African-American pastor, Alex G., and we were talking about—we um, were talking about racial disparities in Dane County. And, I, and we were talking about a number of different projects, and I said, I said, Alex, you know, honestly, part of this comes down to—and I'll be careful, you're going you're gonna to think less of me, but I, you just need to know this, okay? Um, he, he, we're talking about all these things. I said, Alex, listen, this is what you're asking the white community to do, that I'm, I am the poster child of. There are so many slots at UW— if you do the math on how many African-American kids there are in Madison, if they were brought up to the collegiate level and UW didn't expand massively, that would, that would literally mean that my four kids that want to go to UW and these kids that I spend resources, time, effort, raising up to that will be in direct competition with each other, and you know who UW is going to pick if all things are even close to equal. And you know what he said? I said, straight to him. And you know what he said? He laughed out loud. He said, thank you for saying. He said, that's the first time anybody's, any, any person has ever said out loud anything like that. I said, buddy, you have no, I have so many darker things than that to tell you. <laughs> oh, so much darker. And, I, and that's why I was, I was sitting with, um, at a lunch with um, some very, um, like, baby blue um, liberal theological people and stuff talking about that report just this last week. And I, and I, I basically said, this is why this problem can only be solved with self-sacrificial love. You look at it as selfishly as possible, and then you say, screw that, I'm doing this instead because I follow Jesus. 
And, and we'll just have to see what happens. Because love is more important than anything else. And I'm not going to lose my soul and lose my children's soul in privileging them in a way that Jesus has taught me to put myself further. Does that make sense? So, anyhow, we're talking about Isaiah. Or, no, we're not. We're talking about Jeremiah. <laughs> so, the argument then is if you go, okay, so then what is— Okay, so then what's the problem? Okay, so if there's something wrong with me, what's wrong with me? And the claim in Jeremiah could not be clearer— It's right here in chapter 17, verse 9. The heart, that is the human heart, and that is generally speaking about all humans, is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Referring to humans, because then it says that God does. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward men according to their conduct. The focus of that is God understands it, and we can't. Which means that there's two fundamental problems with the human heart, and that is that it is deceitful beyond comprehension. The heart is not only deceitful of others, the focus in the book of Jeremiah is that the heart is self-deceitful. Okay? It is—this is why we need other people. This is why— this is why I invite criticism sometimes. I do this in, like, and why we should all do this in our lives. We'd be like, criticize me, even if it's 20% right, I'd rather have it than not. Why? Because you can see in me stuff that I won't see in me. And it's not even because you're smarter than me. It's just, you, it's just so obvious to you because your heart is busy deceiving you about you. And when it, because it wants to deceive you about you and make you feel self-righteous towards me, it will show you what's wrong with me. But if you tell me, that would be awesome. Right? You could actually use your depravity against itself if you believe in the concept of love. Only if we share humility. And humility can only come from a realization of this. That our own hearts are deceitful beyond comprehension. Listen, you might think this is combative. This is one of the reasons why Christians, though we believe in terms of our politics, or in Western small l liberalism, all views are equal in their right to be heard and believed, we do not believe in the truth equality of all views. And this is why Christians don't believe in enlightenment religions. This is why we don't believe those are an option for us. All enlightenment religions require us to get to a place, either through meditation or through realization, to a place where we can realize the truth within ourselves. And the gospel essentially claims you can never get back behind all the deceitfulness of the human heart. You can't ever do it. You can use things like meditation, have all kinds of realizations, and to release all—I mean, you can do all kinds of cool stuff with it. One of the things that you can't actually do, though, is access the truth. And secondly, is that the human heart is is beyond human cure. There—it is not a sickness that can be managed. It's one of the reasons why Christians don't believe in Islam. Muslims believe we have a choice— we can choose good, we can choose evil. The truth is before us. Here's the truth. And that's why it's a merely revelatory religion. God stands, he speaks, you decide and act. If you choose well, great. If you don't, that's bad. But make a choice. It's up to you. Christians don't believe that. We believe in a fundamental human sickness that makes us incapable and undesiring of the truth. We don't want it. And so what ha- how does— 
how does a sickness like this get cured? Right? By definition, it has to come from the outside. There has to be a truth that comes from the outside because we're self-deceitful. Lies have to be overcome by truth, and that truth can't come from within. It must come from the outside. Therefore, it must be a revelatory salvation. And it's a function of our very being. That means it has to be a spiritual, but a miraculous and supernaturally spiritual salvation. You see, the the fundamental nature of the Christian gospel and what Jesus has done through the cross is specifically tailored. It's like— It's like gene therapy specifically, exactly designed for exactly what's wrong with us. There's two fundamental human problems. Inherent incurable deceitfulness and a sickness that is spiritually and morally, it is metaphysically beyond cure. Therefore, we need a revelation from the outside, and we actually need a power from the outside, and it has to include moral restitution— That's all just deductive from that. And if you know anything about Christianity, it's already kind of sounding like the cross. I don't have time for that right now. There's a review up on the movie Noah, if you're interested in it, on Engage and Equip. Lexi and I went and saw it because there's hubbub about it. Um, Third is determining the remedy. So what is God's solution for this? And in Jeremiah 31, it comes the first straightforward statement of how God is finally going to cure humanity um, in a way that he's, he's never put forward before. This is now, this is going to be, depending on how you count, maybe the fourth covenant or agreement that God has made with humanity. And the three that preceded it all put the, put the focus of success on humans. So the creation mandate created human beings, put them into the world, and said, go out and bring out the creative potential of the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over it. Be in it. Be its manager. And bring out what I've put you here to do. And human beings apparently did a pretty bad job of that. Then in the, in the covenant of Noah, he picked the most righteous guy, wiped out everybody else. And what happened? He gets off the ark— He gets drunk. His family splits up. Things go pretty much back the way they came. In fact, the best 12 seconds of the movie Noah—it kind of went off the rails for the next hour and a half after that—but the best 12 seconds was this point where Noah's getting on the ark, and he realizes that if his family gets on the ark, sin is going to make it through the deluge. And he said, we're all of us just like them. We're holding it back, but the idolatry— is in all of us. And he turns, and he's having this conversation with his wife, and he turns to his wife, and she's looking at him like, what are you, because he's, he names the actual idol in each of his sons, and in himself, and then he gets to his wife, and, you're, and she's been this like really noble character the whole movie, right? And he, he looks at her, and he goes, because you can see the look on her face, like, what are you going to say about me? And she goes, he goes, you would do anything for our sons, implied even turn your back on God's will. And three scenes later, she does exactly that. Because it's true. His whole family. If a human survived the flood, sin survives the flood. And we go right back to where we were. Because even when you pick just the most righteous human, it still doesn't work. And so then God gives a law, right? That's Moses. Moses comes along. There's this whole law. So now there's no question about instructions. At least back with Noah and all the way back with Adam, you could say, well, they didn't have a lot of instructions. Well, they were told not to eat the fruit, and they ate the fruit. So, I mean, I don't know what you can argue there, right? 
But still, I mean, with the law, God gives this holistic law about the social community of the Jewish people, creates a nation out of them, gives them their own land, sets them up for success as much as a Midwestern hovering helicopter parent could possibly do for their children. They were basically like trust babies. And they just like gutted the place. Right? And and that's what this is about. Jeremiah's like, it's over, guys. It is over. The Babylonians are going to come and they are going to wipe you out. But in the midst of that, God says, there's going to be one more covenant. It's going to be the last one. And it's going to work. And I hope you've learned your lesson about the other agreements that focus on you. They don't work. So he says this, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if you were here for the sermons on Isaiah, Isaiah shows that this new covenant goes to Israel and Judah and then goes to all the nations, even to the furthest islands. It's all people. He says this, It will not be like the covenant I made with your foref- their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. See, what? He's saying, it's not my fault. <laughs> I, I didn't— I— I mean, think about this. You do the most you can possibly do for somebody. What's the metaphor you use for that? That I took them by the hand, right? I held their hand. Well, he did everything I could to make that employee work. I mean, I basically held his hand when I was training him, right? He's like, I took them by the hand, and I was a husband, and that is I created a whole household to help them serve, and they still didn't, right? This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that, after that time, declares the Lord, meaning the time of the exile and whatever time comes after that. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now the only negative in that is that if this isn't descriptive, but it's, it's prescriptive, meaning God's going to make it happen directly like that, you might be like, well, that kind of sounds a little bit like God's going to save us through mind control. That's not what the passage is arguing. What the passage is saying is that will be the result. The result of the new covenant is the people that become a part of it will have the law not hanging over them, but written inside them. They will believe it. It will be in them. It will be as deep as their self-deceitfulness is now. So they will have in their minds and in their hearts the truth of God. And therefore they will live together beautifully. And it will be the kingdom of God. Now the confusing thing for us is, is that we think in terms of Old Testament, Jesus, heaven— And so we're used to standing where we think Jesus starts and looking towards heaven, and there's only one horizon. It's just heaven's coming. The new heavens and the new earth. You see, Jeremiah is looking over two, maybe three, and that's why it sounds a little confusing to us, right? Because you're like, wait a second. My neighbors don't all know the Lord. I can't be like, hey, I can say, hey, know the Lord, and that would totally make sense, right? You see, what Jeremiah is, he's looking for, he's seeing past Jesus, the start of the new covenant. You see, the new covenant is forever, The new covenant is just like, until Jesus comes back, and then it's the heaven covenant. No, the new covenant is Jesus, eternity. Okay? And so Jeremiah is looking over Jesus, probably over what sometimes we refer to as a millennial kingdom, into the new heavens and the new earth. He's seeing over at least these two, if not all three, and that's why sometimes in the prophets it's a little confusing. But what he's looking at is he's seeing either the millennial kingdom or he's seeing the new heavens and the new earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, every—there's—there— 
There's no lawyers, there's no cops, there's no doctors, and there's no pastors. The people who keep the peace aren't necessary. Right? Because people have it internalized, and it's stable, and it's eternal. Now, how that happens points back to Jesus and to faith, because it's not my control. It happens by faith. God does it in a process of redemption through human repentance and faith, but it ultimately produces an eternally stable, trusting being that is individually saved and transformed, but for a new eternal society where all are together. In fact, one of the things that Isaiah, or I'm sorry, that Jeremiah argues in this passage is that in the new covenant, the new covenant is more individualistic than the last. And in doing so, it makes a better community than the last. The last was more communal, and it produced worst individuals. But before this, if you read the, the verses just before this in chapter 31, he says this. He says, people used to say that a father eats sour grapes and the child's teeth are set on edge, meaning that what the father does, so the guilt and the effect and all, all that goes to the child, and people are judged linearly like that. And he said, in the new covenant, that fundamentally changes. Even though there's this deep sociological family connection, how people stand morally before God is extricated from their family. They don't stand with their family. They stand alone. Ezekiel 18 says the exact same thing. It doesn't become more individualistic, but it becomes absolutely individual in that sense. Then you are personally related to the new covenant, or not, as an individual person. Not as a nation, not as a people, not as a church, not as a family. But when you become part of it, you become part of a new people of God in which they become your absolute brothers and sisters for all of eternity. And God plants that community in the secular city for its good and prosperity. As it seeks to be the light within that culture and that community. I'm going to skip that for now. There's five clear statements in that passage. The first is, is that it's a new agreement. It's not the old one. The second, just as important, is it's different. It's categorically different. It's not just it's not the old one. It's not like the old one. It's a different kind, and it's different in the sense that it's an inward transformation. It is relational, and in some ways more directly relational than the last. God will be their God, and they will be his people. And it will include a forgiving act, right? He'll forgive us, and he'll remember our sins no more, right? The question is, how does this— So that's the dynamic of the salvation all through the Bible. Now the who. The who is also in Jeremiah. It's two chapters later. How will—like, is God going to do it through mind control? Or is it—what's the means by which God is going to create this new society? This new eternal society in which his law isn't this law that people know of, but they don't listen to, but that the human heart is actually changed and transformed so that— the law can be said to be on their minds and in their hearts, and so the, this eternal society is totally different. He says this. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. That is, that came two chapters earlier. We'll get to chapter 32 in just a minute. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line— he will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which he, it will be called. It is the branch, right? 
the name by which it will be called the Lord our righteousness. There's a bunch of stuff in there. One is that the Savior is going to come from the line of David, and it's going to be a sprout that branches from it, and he will be the thing that focuses his righteousness. The righteous branch, it, which is branch, so you use it, not him, right, will be called the Lord. That's a person, the master, the one who is our righteousness. And notice it's not the Lord who is righteous. It is the Lord who is himself our righteousness. He is the Lord who is our righteousness. Okay? Now think about that. How does, how does that go? How, somehow this person who's going to come from the line of David— is going to himself be righteous and himself not just be righteous himself, but be the righteousness of another group so that it will fulfill the promise of the new covenant, which is to transform fundamentally the hearts of human beings so that the truth of God would be in them, not just on them, rejected by a continually deceitful heart, right? Now think about that. Jesus comes through the line of David. The line of kings fails. Another, another um, prophet says, a sprout will come out of the stump of Jesse. Actually, I think that's in Jeremiah. That it's, it's not like there's a tree and a sprout. It's that the tree's been cut down. The line of kings fails, and yet something sprouts out the side. It's just like Jesus. The lines of kings have totally failed, and all of a sudden, this son of David arises to be the Savior. Scripture says that he died for our sins. That is, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That's a Bible verse, right? Romans 3 says that a righteousness from God, not from us, that we need has been made known to which the law and the prophets, Jeremiah, testify. That is, the prophets told you that a righteousness that isn't your righteousness that you need that's apart from law, meaning it doesn't come through the law, it doesn't come through anything you do, has been made known. It's come about, and we need it. And it says that it came about through the, set, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus so that we could be made righteous. That is, that he will forgive our sins and remember our wickedness no more. When that happens, the human heart in order to receive that from Jesus, what has to happen? What's the only requirement? Repentance and faith, right? I'm wrong, you're right. Do you see how that's the only thing that is absolutely fundamentally necessary to begin to break up the deceitfulness of the human heart? You have to stop believing in your heart. Right? Somebody told me that somebody wrote on one of my— I don't— I use Facebook to talk, not listen. So somebody told me that somebody wrote on my Facebook page that the human heart is the final arbiter of all things, which is a ridiculous statement. It sounds really good. Don't get me wrong. Sentimentally, it sounds really good. But you, essentially is what you're saying is a semi-conscious, not reflected amalgamation of my non-conscious thoughts, my hormones, my drives, my instincts, and my fears, all jumbled together and not thought through, that lunges into my mind at moments is the thing that I ought to listen to all the time. That's what that means. Right? And that's why when people follow their heart, that is, they do whatever they want, they ruin their own lives and everybody else's. Right? The number one fundamental thing necessary to overcome a deceitful, incurable heart is to admit that your heart is deceitful and incurable and ask for the cure that is both supernatural and revelatory of the truth. It kind of makes perfect sense. 
When you say, I'm wrong, teach me the truth, then, the tr- then God can say, here's what's true about you. And the ability that's necessary from the outside comes in. It's what the Bible refers to as, have you ever heard of born-again Christians? The n- they used to call it in the 1700s the new birth. In 1 Corinthians 5, it's the new creation. In Ephesians 2, it's resurrecting the dead. The Bible uses a number of different metaphors for new spiritual life, but it's always supernatural. It's always miraculous. It's always impossible. I mean, Nicodemus said that in John chapter 3. He's like, born again. I mean, I'm, I can't—it'd be a little awkward for me to try to climb into my mother's womb a second time and be born. And Jesus says, you don't understand. That's not how it works. The Spirit does it. He blows where he will. He does what he wants. The Spirit does it. You can't do it, Right? And so there is something that happens when we believe in Jesus crucified and risen for us. He does a work that theologians call regeneration, right? God generated us. We degenerated us. And Jesus is the only one who can regenerate us. He remakes the heart. He call, but he starts by calling it a liar and telling it he will give both the truth and the spiritual resources for transformation. And the minute you stop trusting your heart, it no longer has a monopoly on lies, and the freedom of the truth can really start to come in. In a way, it never can, when ultimately you'll always believe it, whenever there's two people disagreeing, two voices disagreeing. Now, here's the most terrifying thing. We haven't talked about the most terrifying thing yet. The most terrifying thing is— taking the treatment. What does faith and repentance look like? The Christian gospel says we are remade in Christ's image. We are remade as human beings. We become what we are created to be and what we can be forever through repentance that is saying I'm totally wrong to God and you're totally right to God and then saying I need help. Please help me. I want to receive the help you have to give. I will trust you. Repentance and faith. That's how salvation happens. Not by doing good things, Right? The thing is, is they'd be like, wait, I, I can, that's not that big a deal. It's a bigger deal than we often think. The Bible talks about faith as a releasing of the other options. Think about this. Um, if God talks, if, if the dynamic of salvation is the same all the way through the Bible, what does Jeremiah say about the dynamic of faith? What does faith look like? Well, in Jeremiah 21, he tells the Israelites at that time what faith is going to look like, right? So they're living in Jerusalem. The Babylonian army, which is the largest empire in the world, has surrounded their city. They want to breach the walls and kill everybody because this is a rebellious lot. And they're hoping that they maybe can turn to God or not and somehow survive this. The biggest thought in their mind is not God, but how are we going to survive the Babylonian siege? Right? And this is what Jeremiah says. You want to survive it? Sure. This is God speaking to Jeremiah, telling him what to tell the people. He says, furthermore, tell the people, Jeremiah, this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. I'm going to tell you how to survive this. You want to know how to survive this? I'll tell you. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. You bet on the walls, and they will either breach them and kill you. You will starve trying to hold out until they kill you, or all the lack of medicine and water and so on from hanging out in the siege will start a plague in the city and you'll die. You're gonna die. But, he says, whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians, 
who are besieging you will live. He will escape with his life and probably nothing else. That is, these people have come to cut you to pieces and throw you in a garbage and to take over your city because you've been treasonous against their king. That's what they're here to do. They're here to kill you. Now, if you want to live, here's what you do. You open up your city walls, you put down your swords, you leave your homes behind, all your money, all your food, everything that you've held dear, you leave it all behind you, and you walk out to the people that are going to kill you, and you say, I give up. And then you let yourself get dragged 600 miles to Babylon and stuck as captives in a city for seven years, and you'll die there. That's the treatment. Which doesn't sound good. Because you see, a generation before this, not even a generation before this, King Hezekiah was in a similar position. Sennacherib and the Assyrians had come, and they had besieged the city. You might remember this from the Isaiah series, right? Isaiah chapter 30 and 31. Or 50, 40, it's in Isaiah. And they'd come and besiege the city, and Hezekiah repented to God. And what did God do? He created a plague in Sennacherib's army. Like a hundred thousand people died, and they tucked their tails and ran back to Assyria, and Sennacherib got killed by somebody in his entourage, right? That's what everybody wants, right? Well, God, it's easy. We'll just stay in the city, and we'll bet on you and the walls, but we're totally betting on you. Please help us. And God's like, no, we did that, actually. We did that, if we did that 20, 30 years ago. We're not doing that again. Because here's what happens. You're really betting in the wall. You're really betting on the wall. You're betting on your own plan to save yourself, your own plan for your own life, what you're going to do, how you're going to take care of yourself, your way, the way to happiness, how you're going to manage things, how you're going to get what you want. That's what you're really betting on. And you'll tack Jesus onto that. But that's not the call here. You see, here he says, you got to pick. Regenerating, freeing faith requires a choice that burns to ashes all the other options. And you can't have them back until you do it. Right? He says, there's another place in Jeremiah, in chapter 24, a couple of verses later, and he, he shows Jeremiah this bag of fig, this basket of figs, and there's a couple of them, and one of them has really good figs in it, that has really bad figs in it, and, and he goes, Jeremiah, what's with the figs? And he goes, well, I see some good figs that are really good, and I see some bad figs that I wouldn't want to eat. And he goes, he goes, listen, there's good figs and there's bad figs in, in Jerusalem. And let me tell you who the good figs are. The good figs are the ones who are going to go and be exiles. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah whom I sent away from this place to the land of Babylon. You see what he's saying? And notice he's saying, he doesn't, he's not saying they are good. Do you see the language of imputation? That I didn't earn it, God gives it, gives the righteousness from the outside. He says, I will count as good. I regard as good those who accept exile. They don't become better people for doing it. In what sense is going into exile morally praiseworthy? It's not. It's faith, though. It's faith, and it's admitting that you were wrong, and God counts righteousness. He regards as good. And he, it says later on in Jeremiah 29, you know that, that, that passage that like all these Christians have on their like, on their mirror? They're like, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future, right? Now that's totally true. 
It's totally true. But listen, this is who that was for. The people who God said, leave everything behind. You have to choose me this way. You go out to the people who are going to cut your heads off. And you let them drag you 700 miles into exile to a place where you're going to die. You trust me like that, and I will give you a promise like that. Don't put that verse on your mirror unless you have looked Jesus in the face, spiritually speaking, and said, I will walk out to the Babylonians. I will leave everything behind. Teach me the truth. My heart is deceitful above everything. I have no cure for it. You don't do that. You're deceiving yourself by putting up the verse. That's all. Now you might say this, and I'll, this is what I want, I'll end with after I jump over four or five things. Um, what, if you say, okay, well, Nick, I'm a Christian, though. I, I feel like I really have done that. Like, I, I mean, I've ha- I have said I have to leave my self-salvation behind, and I have to turn to Christ and realize that whatever I receive back, He will give me, and I'm going to walk in His ways. And cl- okay, great. That's awesome. Awesome. Okay, so you're like, okay, so now what is this? I mean, is the sermon— Yes, it applies to you, I promise. Now, most of you have heard of Jeremiah 29. I'll preach on it again in the fall in a series we're going to do. I've preached on it before. But Jeremiah 29 says, listen, um, you see, the, the Jews were in Babylon, and they had a false prophet there who was like, listen, we're only going to be here a couple of months. So don't buy anything. Don't get settled. We, we obeyed God. We came all this way. Surely God isn't going to ask us to suffer anymore. Right? We went out. We got our butts kicked. We got dragged into exile. We're here. We did everything he asked of us. So surely any day now, we're going to go home to Israel and build a new city. And Jeremiah writes them this letter, and he's like, don't listen to that guy. Don't listen to that guy. You're going to be there a long while. So you need to be you, but you need to live in that city. So buy a house. Buy a vineyard. Let kids get married. Give your daughters in marriage. Do what people do when they live because you're going to be in that city and your prosperity is going to be tied to the prosperity of that city because you're going to live there. If their neighborhoods are good, your neighborhoods are going to be good. You can't. You are going to be part of that city. So live there, but be mine in that city, which God was forming them into a people that wouldn't be idolaters. He was making them into something, right? But you know what? You know what also happened? And, and mo- a lot of Christians know that one because it's really chic right now to be like, well, we're for the city. We live in the city for the city. And we're like totally for the city and for the people around us and all that stuff. That's really cool right now. And I realize that and I'm totally for it. I'm totally for it. Okay? I want us to be that kind of church. But in Jeremiah 32, something else happens. Between the new covenant and the branch, chapter 32, Jeremiah, Jeremiah's cousin shows up, Right? And meanwhile, think about this. Jeremiah has said this whole, the whole city is going to be destroyed. There's going to be nothing left, right? And his cousin shows up. He goes, Jeremiah, I totally have to sell this field of mine. And you're in the next of kin, so you have the right and duty to buy it. Will you buy my field? And he's like, can I get it like post-apocalyptic prices? I mean, like what? It's worth about a buck, right? And he's like, no, I need you to buy it. And so Jeremiah goes, okay. And so he gathers everybody around, and he gets like— I don't know if it's like 17 shekels of silver, but it's like a pile of silver. And he weighs it all out in front of everybody. It's like the full price for the land, as though the Babylonians aren't going to destroy everything. And he's told everybody they're going to destroy everything. And so they're kind of like, okay, so Jeremiah said, he's kind of like a politician, isn't he? Like he's like, oh, it's all going to get destroyed. Then he's buying property. What's up with that? Right? (laughs) 
So he fills out all the stuff. They fill out all the paperwork. He weighs out all the silver. He pays the silver to his cousin. And he says, listen to me. He takes the papers and he gives them to Baruch, who's his scribe. And he says, put it in a clay jar, like a thick one that's going to last. Because that, those papers in that jar have to outlast all of us. Because we are coming back here. Someday, living in Babylon is going to end. Someday God is going to remake this people. Someday the end is going to come. Someday us being a light in the midst of darkness is going to be over, and we're going to get to be a light with the light. There's going to be a day where the people of God are going to exist together, and nobody's going to have to tell his neighbor, know the Lord. And that day is coming, and you and I are going to come back from Babylon and point towards the greater future of that people when God brings us back. We are going to plant these fields again. We are going to be here again. And it's not going to be us. It's going to be our kids because we're going to die. But I'm buying this field and I'm putting this pot and this is a symbol of me knowing. And guess where my—and think about this. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, a city on a hill is a light that shouldn't be hidden, right? You heard that last week. Do you remember what Jesus also said about treasure? Store up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy it. Do you see what Jeremiah is doing? He's Jesus. He's exactly Jesus. He's saying, just like Jesus said, be a light. He said, go live in Babylon. Be there. Be a light. Be in the city. Be God's people. Be of the heavenly city, but live in the worldly city. Be that. But remember, I bought a field. Remember, that reality isn't going to last forever. Remember where your treasure needs to be. Remember what you really hope in. Be in the world, but not of the world. Or as it says in Colossians, set your mind on heavenly things. Tell me truly. You're a Christian, but tell me truly. Do you think about heaven or your retirement more? Honestly. In the last three months, I have thought 100 times more about the elk trip I'm trying to get together for this fall than heaven. 100 times more. I have thought more about growing shiitake mushrooms than that I belong to a heavenly city. And that's just boulder dash. I can't cuss. I'm I wish I had a bigger evocative word. I don't have one that I can use in public. It's nonsense. If you believe, you and I have to, we, get, we need to live out Jeremiah 29. I want with you in this generation, in our lives, I want us to live out Jeremiah 29 together. I want us to be who we are in this city. I want this city to feel loved by us and to know Christ because of us. I want that. And even if they never accept Jesus— I want them to feel like we genuinely love them because they were human beings made in God's image, even if they believe totally different than us. I want to spend my life for that. But listen, I want every bit of everything I hope for, every dime of it, spiritually speaking, to be in the field I bought and put in a pot for another day. And I think that's the only way I can live sacrificially in the city for my life. It's the only way I can do that. Only if I do what Jesus said, to put my treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy it. And to focus on being a city on a hill. That's the same offer is for you. Join the new covenant. Believe in the branch of David. Trust in him to be the truth teller and the metaphysical changer of the sinful heart we all have. And then 
buy and live in the secular city that we're in. We must do that. That's what we're here to do. But when you walk out of the gates, when you settle in your heart what real faith looks like, and when you think about it long term, those two, those two thoughts have to be true of us. That Jesus is so central to my existence that I would walk away from everything and walk to the aiming barrels of a besieging army if he told me to do it. And hoping in nothing but him in the most unlikely circumstances possible and that everything I am and have ultimately finds its fullest realization in the field I have not yet planted. But by God's generosity, I own. The only difference is that he paid full price for it. Let's pray. Father, um, would you help us to enjoy the truth of the gospel in Jeremiah hundreds of years before Jesus came, that he saw your day and was glad, that he knew what you were up to, that the, your message, we want to believe that it was, it's somehow different through the Bible. You've said the same thing. You've said it over and over again. Will you help us face the symptoms? Will you help us see the problem? Will you help us see the treatment and take the course? Father, we pray that you would build in us real repentance and real faith so that we could fulfill everything that we were meant to be.